From KCRW, this is Greater L.A. I'm Steve Chiatakis with a show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. When Nan Ibarra first heard last year about California Governor Gavin Newsom's idea for new mental health courts called Care Court, she was all for it. Ibarra is a longtime advocate for families with members suffering from severe mental illness. She has two sons with schizoaffective disorder, which causes delusions and mood swings. One of her sons refuses medication. So he has been living on the streets in Anaheim, on and off, in shelters, would not accept any help whatsoever. Governor Newsom's concept seemed like a lifesaver, a new system that would create 12-month court-mandated treatment plans for severely ill people. But now that Care Court is a reality in L.A. and seven other counties in California, Ibarra is no longer sure it'll help her son at all. So who is Care Court for, and how will it work? KCRW reporter Anna Scott picks up the story from here. Care Court was conceived in part as a badly needed middle path between watching someone like Ibarra's son deteriorate on the streets and a full-on conservatorship, a legal option that would strip his personal decision-making rights indefinitely. When Governor Newsom and other politicians talk about it, Ibarra's son is exactly the type of person they say it's for. Families are at the end of their ropes. Communities are frustrated. And leaders up and down the state have felt like our hands have been tied. And that's why what we're doing here today is so important. This is L.A. County Supervisor Janice Hahn during a press conference on November 30th, one day before the launch of Care Court in Los Angeles. We know that there are too many people with severe mental illness who are living on the streets. We've all seen them. Notice the framing here. When Hahn and other politicians, like Newsom, talk about Care Court, it's almost always as a fix for homelessness. But most people living on the street won't have anything to do with Care Court. According to the L.A. County Mental Health Department, only about 10 percent of the unhoused population has a mental illness that would qualify them for Care Court. The program is specifically for people with schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders. I asked Han if she's concerned about people expecting to see a huge change on the streets come from Care Court. It's not a concern for me that uh, people will assume that Care Court uh, will solve homelessness. What's more of a concern for me is, of course, doing nothing. The way Care Court works in L.A., family members or health care providers can petition to enroll someone in the program through new specialized courtrooms in Norwalk. If a petition is accepted, the subject gets a lawyer from the public defender's office, the county mental health department gets involved, and hearings are set, with the goal of everyone together coming up with a so-called care plan. That is, a series of milestones, like going to a clinic, taking certain medications, or accepting housing, on a timeline, usually a year to start. But the creation of Care Court doesn't come with a big influx of new housing options, treatment beds, and services. L.A. County has some new state-funded housing dollars to work with, but officials have shuffled their priorities to make sure they have the resources to support Care Court. That's according to L.A. County Mental Health Director Lisa Wong. What we've done is we looked through all of our raised services, housing, everything, to put together a package that makes sure that people coming through Care Court are not going to fall through the cracks. So there will be sufficient housing, there will be sufficient services, 
But, you know, to be honest, I tell people in therapy this all the time, that with every decision, there's a loss. So when we are front-loading and prioritizing care court, this does take away from something else, potentially. What happens if someone stops showing up to hearings, doesn't follow their care plans? Well, care court is voluntary, as in there aren't any criminal or civil penalties written into the law for not cooperating. If someone walks away from the program, they might be left alone. In other instances, they might end up involuntarily hospitalized or in a conservatorship. But Dr. Wong hopes care court will result in fewer people reaching those outcomes, not more, which some advocates don't buy at all. Part of the appeal of care court is like, oh, it's a least restrictive alternative to conservatorship, except that it steps people up into conservatorships, not down. Claire Courtright is the policy director for Cal Voices, a Sacramento advocacy organization run by and for people with serious mental illness. She says that simply by being part of the civil justice system, care court is coercive. Voluntary services don't actually exist, and they're not culturally competent. And we mean they're not culturally competent for people with mental illness. They're extraordinarily paternalistic. They're extraordinarily biased. I can tell you, you don't have due process when your judge has a bias against you. It does not exist. On the other end of the concern spectrum, Nan Ibarra doesn't see care court working for her son because she simply can't imagine him cooperating. For his individualized case, I'm not feeling like the care court is going to do it because it's voluntary. That's the big word. And those of us who deal with somebody with severe mental illness, we know that it's a slippery slope. If they choose to go off their meds, takes a little while. You can still reason with them and then you can't. That's why now she's in the process of pursuing a conservatorship instead through Orange County Superior Court, which she knows is an extreme measure. And she wrestles with that. My son will not be able to drive. I will make decisions on where he will go. Those kind of things, which look really harsh, counterintuitive to mothering. So that's another stigma. It's like, how could you do this? And it's a terrible thing for mothers to have this in their lives. So Care Court kicked off in L.A. at the beginning of the month with a lot of uncertainties, conflicting concerns, and still high hopes. Under state law, it'll be in every California county by the end of next year. For KCRW, I'm Anna Scott. My name is Tori. I've been a listener of KCRW for, oh wow, a while now. It started when I had this one job where I'd be in the office all by myself. And so to keep myself company, I would listen to KCRW. And that's how I became a member because you're doing the member drive. And I was like, well, I owe it to them. They've kept me company. They've kept me sane all these years. Um, I would say there's cool members only stuff like this to do. Also, you guys have great swag. Like the KCRW mugs and stuff are like lining my kitchen shelves. So it's just, it's a really great community resource. And I think it's really important that we support our community resources that support us. It's got to be a symbiotic relationship. Symbiotic relationship. There you go. Thank you, Tori. As we continue on with Greater LA coming up in about eight minutes, Gustavo is in talking about what he says are all the talented folks who leave Orange County. But first, a holiday message about community. You heard Tori say it. 
You keep me sane during the day, right? Well, listening at work. Or think of all the communities that you're a part of with KCRW. You have a friends group, your family group, your work group, whatever it may be. You are listening during the season of giving back. It's a wonderful time to make a tax-deductible donation. So we thank you for spending your year with us and for being a part of the community and for your support. Of course, if you're able to do so, how about making an end-of-year donation to keep KCRW a part of your life in the coming year? And today only, today only, I feel like a salesman here. I guess we all are in some way. One of our special KCRW board members, Michael Fleming, and the Bonnet Foundation will match your gift up to $25,000. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for that. Again, your gift matched today and today only. So 100 bucks becomes 200 or 30 bucks a month. Well, that becomes 60 bucks right there at kcrw.com slash give. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your support of public radio. Give right now. See your dollars doubled. Do it for your taxes. It is the end of the year, after all. Do it for the holidays, a season of giving and giving back. Do it for KCRW's place in your daily life. And thank you. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. More now from Greater L.A. and KCRW. I'm Steve Chiotakis. Later in the program, in about eight minutes or so, it is our OC Oracle, Gustavo Ariano, and all the musings he can muster from Orange County. But first... To West Los Angeles and UCLA we go, where disability studies is now a full-on major offered for students. The subject's been a growing one on campuses all across the country with a focus on the culture, history, and political movements surrounding the disability rights movement. But UCLA is going all in with the full major. Again, already happening. And with me to talk about it and what it means is Victoria Marks, professor of choreography at UCLA Arts and chair of their disability studies major. Professor, welcome to you. Thanks so much, Steve. So tell me, explain what a disability studies major looks like. Well, disability studies um, follows the histories of other political movements, which yielded programs in, in, for example, women's studies, gender studies, queer studies, race studies. Um, Our program in disability studies challenges and hopefully changes society's attitudes towards uh, disability in, in terms of human variation. And it considers, it's an interdepartmental program, which is to say that we have faculty from all across the campus contributing research and teaching to the major. And so we're looking at history, law, rights and representation, access, identity, culture, and politics. Um, We have uh, faculty members from um, the humanities, the social sciences, healthcare, public policy, the arts, which is where I'm from, uh, technology and education. Well, let's talk about that because you're also, as I mentioned, a professor of choreography at UCLA Arts and that combination might surprise some folks linking those two kinds of studies, but there is obviously a, a link talk a little bit about that. Well, I began my work as a choreographer, oftentimes working with performers, sometimes people who didn't identify as performers, and sometimes 
trained performers who had disabilities or in other ways were invisibilized by society. And so I saw performance as a way of thinking about representation, social change, and allowing and encouraging people to have their voices. So that's where I began. And at this point, the way I think about the arts and disability is that disability culture, that is to say, things that artists, folks with disabilities make, changes culture for all of us. And it's very important to have the opportunity to learn from the lived experience of other folks with diverse with diverse corporeal experience. Who who are in these classes, Professor? Like, it, are they people not only just disabled themselves, but also people who deal with the disability community uh, in building and in accommodating and things like that? Uh, is it history? Like, who are the folks taking these classes as part of this program? This is a very diverse group of students who come to disability studies. Firstly, I think uh, disability studies is is um, introduces all of us to challenging the ableism that's inherent in the world that we inhabit. The students who come, maybe they're going into medical fields or science fields, technology, engineering, where they need to start thinking about um, challenging the ideas of normal and also appreciating that bodies are not there for repair alone. We live, we live fully, and we look for all the opportunities of citizenship for all people. We also have students who come from the humanities and the arts. Some students perhaps come because they identify as having a disability or they're moved because members of their family have disabilities, or again, that they hope that their work will allow them to create a more accessible world in whatever it is that they're going to do. And, you know, the real world applications of all this, of disability studies, what what would what would that entail, do you think? Like, what might it be? What kind of jobs do you see graduates of this major getting after they after they get out of school? Well, the major is designed for anyone in any field, Um, just as we want to become aware and understanding of the way race plays a role in all of our lives. We want to become, I hope we want to become aware of the way ableism plays a role in all of our lives. And to think, because we are a liberal democracy, we want to think about how we can allow all people, encourage and support all people to flourish. So disability studies is for everyone and for all the potential careers that people will move into. You said something curious in in the middle of our interview, and that was using the term invisibilizing, which I think perfectly sums up what what happens in, in many cases, not only just in the disability community, but in many communities, invisibilizing. And I wonder why, number one, is UCLA the only school doing this right now? And number two, why did it take so long? And do you see this kind of movement continuing? You know, I think that there's a tremendous amount of stigma around disability. In in many ways, it just has not really been on the radar as we look at equity, diversity, and inclusion, for example. I know that's a buzzword. So I think that's, in a way, why the university um, has identified disability studies as an important 
discipline to offer and to recognize. And then the other thing about disability that you brought up is, you know, the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, didn't get passed until 1990, which for me and in my life, that's not so very long ago. Disability studies has been slow to get the attention that it needs. Um, UCLA is the very first of the University of California institutions to have a BA degree in disability studies. That's not to say that other institutions don't have minors or have applied programs, for example, special education or um, various forms of therapies or and so on. But disability studies is taking, I mean, UCLA is taking a broad and holistic view of the field. There are other programs in the United States, not very many. For example, Syracuse University had the very first disability studies program, and I'm not remembering the date of it, but um, it was tied to their education program. The hope here is that what we're doing at, at UCLA will encourage more institutions, more, more places in academia to address this important new discipline of study. Well, I want to thank you for coming on and talking with us about it. Congratulations on the new major and much luck to you in, in, in getting so many people involved in it because I'm sure there's a lot of thought going into it. Victoria Marks, professor of choreography over at UCLA Arts and also the chair for their new disability studies major. Victoria, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Thanks, Steve. Glad to be here. Tomorrow on Greater LA, how the Japanese art of wrapping in cloth instead of paper makes the holidays extra green. But first, to a Japanese star baseball player who just sealed the biggest deal, a lot of green, in sports history. It involves a trip up the 5 freeway to LA from Orange County. Pitchers and catchers won't report for a few months, but when they do, one pitcher and slugger will report in blue. Shohei Otani, baseball's modern-day enigma, signed a record-shattering $700 million contract with the Dodgers after six years with the Angels. Our OC Oracle, Gustavo Ariano, is here with more on the deal and what it means for both baseball franchises in the area. Hey, Gustavo. Hola, Steve. Well, this is big news over the weekend. What are the details of Otani's contract with the Dodgers, and how does that compare to the previous biggest contract in MLB? Oh, my gosh. So uh, you got 10 years at $700 million, $70 million a season. Jeez, he, will, he only has to play three, no, even two seasons. He'll match the payroll of some of the, you know, some of the teams in Major League Baseball. And he beats the record set by his former teammate now, the current continued superstar for the Angels, Mike Trout. But everyone knew that whatever Shohei was going to sign, whoever he was going to sign with, it was going to break some type of record, whether it was most, uh, you know, for a uh, highest contract for a season or for a couple of years, but nowhere, no one saw 10 years. That That's a big gamble by the Dodgers, but the Dodgers know what they're doing, it seems. And there, there's no out clause, by the way. He's going to, no. he's probably going to be in, in a Dodger uniform until 20, what, 2033? Is that right? 
a lot of it is on the back end when the Dodgers are going to pay him because Shohei wants to play for a winner. So he said, hey, look, for the first couple of years, like you don't have to pay me as much because I want to win not tomorrow, but now. Literally, I want to be a World Series champion 2024. No more <laughs> playoff chokes by the Dodgers anymore. Not on my watch. Whatever I can do to make it happen, here I am to help. Do do the do the Dodgers, Gustavo, have the money for this? Or does it mean that, you know, the price of a beer and a Dodger dog are going to be like 40 bucks? <laughs> oh, every, the, here, here's the thing with the Dodgers fan. And look, you're more of a Dodgers fan than I am. I enjoy the Dodgers. I wouldn't consider myself a fan. But when I go to the stadium... I'm not paying, what, $17 for a michelada or whatever you pay for a Dodgers dog, but other people definitely are because the lines are through the door. And all my cousins who love the Dodgers, they'll say, I'll pay $50 for a Modelo if that means a World Series championship. And that means seeing the greatest player of our generation and one of the you know greatest talents ever in, the, in Dodgers blue. So people do not care. Obviously, the Dodgers have the money because otherwise they wouldn't be promising it. And uh, people are already saying that the, the Dodgers might be baseball's first ever 4 million uh, tickets sold in one season team next year because everyone's going to want to go to Dodger Stadium to see Shohei. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, for the for, for World Series win, but <laughs> they couldn't even get past the first round of the playoffs, right? They got swept so last year, you know, and they, and that was with their ace, another guy who signed this giant contract, a guy named Clayton Kershaw. And they signed Mookie Betts, and they signed Freddie Freeman. But look, they've been going now to the uh, playoffs well, over a decade at this point. Meanwhile, the Angels, they uh, the the Angels never made the playoffs under Trout and Otani. And poor Mike Trout, he in his entire incredible career, he's only been to the playoffs once, and the Angels got swept. The Angels are just the laughing stock of Major League Baseball. I do not blame them for not signing such a huge con- or not offering Otani such a huge contract. It is risky, um, but they have nothing. They could have traded him last year. Nope. I think for letting him go, if memory serves me correct, they're going to get like a conditional draft pick. Like all those years, this is what Angels owner Artur Moreno was able to get out of uh, Shohei. What a what a disgrace. What a joke. We we knew Otani was going to leave the Angels. Did he have to, though? I mean, why didn't Artie Moreno make a play for him? Because, I mean, with Trout and with with Otani, how come they couldn't field like the best team in baseball? I don't understand that. That That is a big mystery, and we've talked about this before because we're both baseball fans. For the first decade of Moreno's ownership, the Angels were competitive. That's when they were signing people like uh, Vladimir Guerrero, Bartolo Colon, um, and they had a pretty good farm system. But this ever since... They signed Albert Pujols to a 10-year contract when he was at the prime of his game with the, with the Cardinals. It has just been downhill from there. And I, and I know, I'm, I'm assuming Moreno's, uh, what do they say, twice bitten, twice shy or whatever at this point. Because he has so many bad contracts that he has signed. The most, you know, the most recent one is with Anthony Rendon, who has barely played any games because he keeps getting injured. And so Moreno's no longer, it seems, in the business of giving out these big contracts. But at the same time, he's, they've never been in the business of really focusing on their minor league team. So it's just a franchise adrift. Uh, Moreno, or rather Shohei leaving to the Dodgers is an extra insult for Orange County because evil, evil LA. If, if he had gone to Seattle or San Francisco or even the Blue Jays, we would not have cared. But LA beats Orange County yet again. Is this yet another example of leaving OC to come to LA to do, you know, big things? Oh, my God. It, it, that, that's just rubbing uh, salt on the wound because so many young, talented people have been leaving Orange County for L.A. forever, and we all hate them. 
But here's Shohei. We forget Shohei's a millennial. Why does he want? Why would he want to stay in Orange County? Orange County's not cool. And this is coming from a lifer here who has tried to make Orange County cool. It's not as cool as LA. That's how it is. LA Times columnist Gustavo Ariano with us on the Shohei beat this week. Gustavo, as always, thanks. Gracias. It's going to do it for us this evening. Coming up in just a moment, it's Today Explained and Concrete, one of the world's biggest sources of carbon emissions, and how some tech companies, even an NBA star, are trying to come up with solutions. That's coming up next. Tomorrow on this program, the sustainable holidays, what you can do to increase the joy and decrease your carbon footprint through it. I hope you'll join us tomorrow for Greater LA. I hope you'll join us at the radio station during this season of giving back. No, we're not looking for $700 million. Maybe 70 bucks from you. That would be great. An end-of-the-year donation to help us out to keep KCRW strong and healthy. Go to kcrw.com slash give, and thank you for your support of public radio. While you're at the website, you can tell us how you're doing. You can share a story idea with us and get the podcast, too, so you can get the show on the go at kcrw.com slash GLA. And think about a contribution, of course, while you're there. And thank you, thank you, thank you for your support of public radio. Juliana Mayo, Zoe Matthew, Kelsey Gante, Eddie Sun, Sonia Geis, Ray Guarna, Sue Margulies, Phil Richards, Michael Stark, Amy Talk, Carlos Ramirez, Michael Vogel, and Christian Bordal all helped run the episode this evening. I'm Steve Chiotakis. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.